Our scripture today comes from three books of the Bible. The first reading is from the New Testament Gospel of Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 23. The second, Deuteronomy from the Old Testament, chapter 7, verses 6b through 9, and chapter 30, verse 15 and 19 through 20a. And finally, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. From Matthew, chapter 4, verses 12 through 23. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the lake, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that when he so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun and Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim... Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. From Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6b through 9, and chapter 30, verse 15, and 19 through 20a. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on earth to be his people, his treasured possession. It was not because you were more numerous than other, any other people that the Lord set his heart on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who maintains covenant loyalty with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. See... I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying him and holding fast to him, for that means life to you and length of days, so that you may live in the land that the Lord swore to give to your ancestors to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And finally, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. But you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against you, against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that though they may align you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. I invite you in the moments between two soundings of the singing bowl to meditate on the one who is the source of your life and your love. It was my good fortune many years ago to have known Robert McAfee Brown, who was a Protestant professor of theology. At the time, this was in Berkeley, way over on the left coast. He tells a story about an occasion when he was involved in anti-war demonstrations during the period of the Vietnam War. And he remarked to a friend of his that unlike others who had been very active in, in anti-war demonstrations, who had done a lot of activism and participation in initiatives to try to bring the public to a place where they would stand in opposition to the war. And he felt in some ways like he was not quite as able, not quite as committed and involved as others who were much more visible, much more well-known. People like Joan Baez and the fathers Daniel and Philip Berrigan and the pastor of Riverside Church in New York, uh, William Sloan Coffin. And it was at a time when one of these, these uh, protest demonstrations had come to an end and there was something planned for the next day. And so they had to spend the night, some of the leaders had to spend the night in a hotel. And it was the good fortune of Robert McAfee Brown to spend the night as a, with a roommate who happened to be Rabbi Abraham Heschel. He took occasion of this uh, roommate and their location to share with the rabbi some of his misgivings, some of his uneasiness, some of his dissonance at not doing more for the cause. And he was hoping he would get some sort of response from the rabbi that would give him some wisdom on how he might proceed. But the rabbi instead was a rabbi, and he said, let me tell you a story. <laughs> he told a story about the great rabbi Zusha. And Heschel said, when Rabbi Zusha was on his deathbed, he lamented the fact that he had not done as much as he would have liked. One of the attendants in the room with him said to him, 
Rabbi, are you concerned about the judgment that is soon to come? And the rabbi almost said yes. But then he thought for a moment, then he said, no, because when I stand before the Almighty, may the name be praised, God will not ask me, why weren't you Moses? He will ask me, why weren't you Zusha? Who's living your life right now? You or somebody else? Who is the I, the, the, the me, that acts in and through your embodiment? When someone knocks on the door of your soul, who answers? Do you know who you are? Do you know where you are? Do you know who we are as a community, as a congregation? Do you know where we are? This morning, I want to be mindful that we are in between. We are in that condition that cultural anthropologists call liminality. This is a liminal period, and it is a dispiriting condition. We are no longer, but we are not yet. There are two lines between those two, the no longer and the not yet, and right now we are between those two lines. We are in that, in that space, and it is not terribly, terribly comfortable. But yet we all know what it's like to be in a liminal situation. I, I think all of us, to one degree or another, have a good understanding of what it's like to be betwixt and between. In the middle, neither nor. For example, suppose that you recall in your mind an occasion when you have lost a job. You are no longer employed, but you're not yet employed. You're in that space in between that is rather unsettling. Or suppose you have found one and you seek to be married with that one, to share your life, to commit your love to that one, and you happen to agree with one another that this is a good thing, something that you wish to do. So one offers the proposal, the other accepts. You know, it can go both ways nowadays. And at some point then, you realized you are now in a new situation. You are betrothed. You are engaged. You're no longer single with all the rights and privileges appertaining thereto. But you are not yet married. It's kind of different. Not permanent, not forever, but it's kind of different. Or for those of you who are by nature childbearing, there comes a moment when you are not with child. <laughs> and then there comes a moment when you are with child. But the child is not yet born. So you are not yet a mother. So between being childless and being a mother is that liminal period we call pregnancy. Or suppose you are a child, and as you grow, as you develop, you find yourself in a circumstance where you can navigate your environment by crawling, and oh, you can do 40, 50 miles an hour. <laughs> but then you start thinking about walking, 
where your maneuverability is extraordinarily enhanced. But between the graduating from the crawling and the integrating of the walking, there's this period where there's a lot of falling, a lot of hitting head on the coffee table, a lot of bruises and bumps and maybe even a little blood. That's a liminal period. Or suppose we talk about Israel between the slavery of Egypt and the occupancy of the land of promise. This is a liminal period. It can be unsettling. It can be conflictual. It certainly is dispiriting because you no longer have the status and the condition you once had. You've lost that which is familiar. But on the other hand, you can hardly imagine what it might be when you cross over that boundary. So you see, in the condition of liminality, there are, are, are three fairly distinct phases. The first one is when you are separated from some population, some condition, some, some status. And then that's followed by the liminal period proper, where you have no status, you certainly don't have the same status, and your condition is kind of iffy. And then finally, you cross over that boundary. You enter into a new status, a new condition, a new relationship, a new community. But right now, we're in this period of liminality. And I suspect if you are anything like a very normal human being, you're a little uneasy about the uncertainty and the movement, the shakiness of the ground on which we're standing. But as with the ancient Hebrews, as narrated in the text by Brian, so this morning we find ourselves in this in-between, not yet, uh, no longer. We have to make choices. We have to make some decisions. We may not like the decisions. We may not like the options that are given to us. We may have difficulty imagining possibilities. But the fact of the matter is we're in a period of time which is going to be involved with decision-making. And in some ways, either literally or symbolically, the options that are presented to us are similar to those that were presented to the ancient Hebrews. Life and death, prosperity and adversity, obedience or disobedience. But we don't want to choose. We really don't want to choose. We're anxious, we're uncertain, we're concerned. We're trying to make adjustments, trying to settle in in this liminal period, and we really would rather not choose. We don't know actually what to choose. On the other hand, we know what it means to die, but we don't know what it means to live. To live is to be given the gift of a future. And we have been given a gift of a future. It seems to me that the past is the way of dying, and the future is the way of living. The past exists only in our memory, and the future lives only in our hope. So we have this opportunity to find ourselves in this liminal period where we can have conversations with one another, engage one another, anticipate the time that will be coming when we will cross over that boundary and enter into a new condition, a new position, a new, a new status. So in the meantime, what is it that prevents us from inhabiting this, 
this interim space, this liminality with serenity and compassion and magnanimity. Perhaps, perhaps it is because we are unwilling to acknowledge our own faults, our own flaws. There is fear and there is dread at the prospect of acknowledging our shadow side as individuals in relation one to another, but as a congregation, as a community. And yes, there is a shadow side to this culture, to this community, to this communal set of relationships one with another. But we have this incredible opportunity to maximize our time in this space, to prepare ourselves for something new that is coming. We must pass through this period of liminality. Because you see, in a sense, uh, uh, unless we realize that there is an element of truth in the command to love one another, to love one another as Christ loves us, so says the text. To love one another as Christ who suffered for us, says the tradition. In a sense, in a very real sense, to generate compassion in our midst, we have to realize that we ourselves also suffer in this community and out in our lives about. But that there is the possibility of ending this suffering and that our life individually and with one another is among those who also wish to be free from suffering. The compassion that we're looking for is the unmitigated freedom to enter into the suffering of one another, to be present to and with one another in ways perhaps that are going to be peculiar to this period of no longer, but not yet. I think in some ways our faults and our, our flaws are, are in some bizarre sense enhanced by our tendency to be opposers and deniers. I'm opposed and I deny. But you see, I think in a condition of liminality, in this in-between, we have an opportunity to assess that which we have in fact opposed, that which we in fact have denied. Because I think the undercurrent in some ways, the, the, the tendency moves us in some ways to stand in opposition to the divine one, to the one who bequeaths us life and love, the one who capacitates us to be caring and compassionate. We actually stand in opposition and deny our relationship, deny our relatedness to the source of our very life. We find ourselves manifesting pride or, 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 or hubris, exalting ourselves. We, we, are, we are the idol of our own religion. But on the other hand, there's also a sense in which we've debased ourselves. We've become slothful. We lower ourselves to the point where we are seemingly beyond the reach of the divine grace, beyond the reach of those in our community who want more than anything else to be part of us, to be with us, to share with us. We also have a tendency to oppose one another, 
and to deny the fact that we are actually in relationship with one another. That fundamentally, we are social creatures locked into relation with one another. It's what the character and the tone and tenor of that relationship is that makes all the difference in the world. Let's be mindful of the tendency from time to time to be domineering, to practice a kind of domination, a kind of over others, a kind of power and influence that would seek to manipulate and guide others toward a desired, our desired end. At the same time, there is a tendency among us, as all, to commit to a kind of subservience, a kind of passivity, a kind of indifference. That is not who we are called to be. That is not how we are to be with one another. To be compassionate requires that we remember and we enter again into our pain and debilitating suffering. Not to remain there, not to drown in that experience yet again, but rather to have that awaken, kindle our awareness of what it's like to be in need of the compassion of someone else. We all need to be the recipients of the compassion of others, just as we all need to be the extenders of compassion to others. This business of uh, being in the space, this liminal space, is hard. Uh, it's supposed to be a struggle. It is supposed to be a struggle, but not a struggle between good and evil or right and wrong, but a struggle between living and dying between rising and falling, between union and separation, between scattering and gathering, between participation and isolation and withdrawal. It is supposed to be hard. It is, it is supposed to be hard. But we are in this together. And we mark our territory by recognizing that we are a community that lives in this liminal period, this in-between period, in recollection and expectation. We live at the intersection of, of remembering and expecting. Because we are, after all, a community whose tradition is grounded in memory and hope. That describes our in-between condition. We are preeminently a community that lives on the boundary between promise and fulfillment. So we're in this together. We're all in this together. And who knows, but what, perhaps something, some new ingredients will emerge to our sense of relatedness, to our sense of what it means to be a community. And I'm not talking about um, new systems and structures and new positions and, and, and all of that sort of thing. Rather, I'm talking about the nurturant communion of equals who are invested in one another. I'm talking about open and fluid relationships among people who are very different from one another, very, very diverse. I'm talking about what, what anthropologists call communitas, not just community, but that inner spirit 
that seems to bring the connection, to bring the love and the compassion to expression. That all other things, structures, structures and buildings and, and, and programs, and so uh, those are all accoutrements. What is most fundamentally real is that heart, that beat of the community. And it's hard work to make that happen. It's hard work to live in that communitas. But at the very same time, we have the opportunity in the months uh, ahead of us. Because the fact of the matter is that creating and renewing an intentional community is just plain hard work. But it can and will be done by the Spirit of God and the grace of God, but not without a vision, not without an imagination of who we are and how we are together and where we may be going as we move through this period of in-between out into the entrance, into a new way of being with one another and in this larger community. Without a vision, we're doomed. So our conversations with one another will move toward articulating that sense of vision. I can't help but be reminded when I talk about vision of a poem written by Wendell Berry called A Vision. And it goes like this. If we will have the wisdom to survive, to stand like slow-growing trees in a ruined place, renewing it and enriching it, if we will make our seasons welcome here, asking not too much of earth or heaven, then a long time after we are dead, the lives, our lives prepared, will live here. Their houses strongly placed upon the valley side, fields and gardens rich in the windows. The river will run clean as we will never know it, and over it, birdsong like a canopy. On the levels of the hills will be green meadows, stockbell in noonshade. On the steeps where greed and ignorance cut down the old forest, an old forest will stand, its rich leaf fall drifting across its roots. The veins of forgotten springs will have opened. Families will be singing in the fields. In their voices, they will hear a music that's risen out of the ground. They will take nothing from the ground. They will not return, whatever the grief at parting. Memory, native to this valley, will spread over it like a glove. And memory will grow into legend, and legend into song, and song into sacrament. The abundance of this place the songs of its people and its birds will be health and wisdom and indwelling light. This is no paradise or dream. Its hardship is its possibility. Blessed be.